Hi everyone, my name is Saya and this is the Hearsay Podcast number 34. I'm recording this intro in Las Vegas, uh, which is new for me because I'm on holidays. I was hoping to have some more podcasts out soon, but I will get more out to you shortly. I have a few in the bag that I really can't wait to share with you guys. So hopefully those will come out soon. My guest today is my friend Cav Templey. You might know Cav as the singer and bass player from the band Eskimo Joe, uh, who incidentally were the first band to take my band second in on a massively long regional tour of Australia back in the day. Uh, we talk about this a bit, rehash some memories, laugh about old times. Uh, but just a warning, these old time stories have quite a lot of swearing in them and there is also a bit of drug chat. So just a heads up, if either of these things offend you, maybe don't listen to this episode. But if you find these stories interesting, keep listening. Um, on a side note, Kevin and I have a show coming up uh, as part of his solo album tour in October. It's on the 5th in Brisbane at the Milk Factory. So come along to that if you're around. I'm sure it's going to be super fun. Uh, Cav's awesome strange show story was illustrated by Shane Adamchuk. You can check out more of Shane's work on his Instagram or Twitter at Shane Adamchuk, which is S-H-A-N-E-A-D-A-M-C-Z-A-K. Adamchuk. Uh, remember you can see all illustrations for the podcast on Instagram at hearsay podcast or on the hearsay Facebook page. Enjoy hearsay number 34, Cav Templey. Thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. You were probably one of the first bands that ever took my band on tour. That's right. Yep. We did a long, grueling tour. I just remember you, I was just impressed because you had a um, pedal that was a clap pedal that you hit and would make a clap sound. I just, I remember <laughs> finding right. that. <laughs> I thought that was really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> What a fucking idiot. No. I reckon, I'm no, it's because I only had one hand to clap. Right. Because yes. we had a song that went. Yeah. 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 It was good. <laughs> Sounded good. That's pretty much exactly the sound it made. Yeah. <laughs> I have really fond memories of that tour. That was like the first regional experience I'd ever had. Yeah. Like we went to like Grafton and Coffs Harbour. Yeah. And you know, I mean, we we've been doing those tours for a few years because that was by that time it was our album tour and we were actually, you know, doing our own tours. But we'd ha we had we had done many many years of of doing those tours, and I I feel like I mean maybe I'm just like older and I don't think jaded is the word because I'm definitely not jaded. But I just I wonder if those tours still exist, like people still do them because I haven't done one in a very long time. But I seem to remember, no, nor have I. I seem to remember like that period of time, like from our first record, even up to when we released Black Fingernails, we were, we were, we could kind of tour and play these crazy regional shows like five nights of the week. Totally. I remember being super impressed that like Eskimo Joe had the pulling power to play sold out show in Coffs Harbour. That was when we peaked in Coffs Harbour. It was all downhill after yeah. that. We never, we never pulled a person again. <laughs> Well, I have a really funny memory of Coffs Harbour in particular. I remember someone came up to 
I can't remember if it was Mirko, um, our drummer, or, or Joel was playing drums for you still at the time. Yeah. But someone went up uh, after the show and went, you made them drums piss, mate. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I remember that. I can't remember whether it was Joel or, or Mirko either, but yeah, but we we um we dined out on that joke for a long time afterwards. Because <laughs> it wasn't even those drums; it was you made them drums. Them piss. drums, yeah, <laughs> yeah, love it. And I'm pretty sure there was a lot of use cunts a choice cunts kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, there was lots of that stuff going on. I think we were like you know coming from uh, I mean maybe it's a similar thing coming from Brisbane, but. Uh, coming from from Fremantle and Perth, well, Fremantle especially where we're from, which is such a bubble of like, you know, indie. Oh, I don't know if indie's the word. It's like it's like a boho town. It's like you know all those these bohemian artists. And so, whenever we went out into the world and you know um, encountered people who would say things like "You made them drums piss," we were just like, "This is amazing. <laughs> these people yeah. exist." I thought it was just like in storybooks. So uh, yeah, we had yeah. we had lots of moments. I, I can remember I remember one moment in the really early days when we had to catch buses, you know, between cities uh, on the east coast because yeah. I don't think anyone had a credit card, so we couldn't actually hire a car. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone's so, under twenty five. Yeah, so we uh, we would be catching buses and we'd be at the bus station. And I remember one of this one time, and we we again, this is another thing we just kept dining out on for years because we just thought it was amazing. These, <laughs> this guy, I mean, who who says this? But this guy came up and was just like, "Have any of you cunts got two bucks? Because me and my missus are fucked." And we, we just th- <laughs> we just thought that was the most amazing. We were Shit. no, but who comes up and calls someone a cunt and then goes, "Can I have two dollars?" Uh, you know. Well, I think in that um, in that scenario, a cunt is a term of endearment. It's just like, "Hey, buddy, yeah, can you spare some money?" It's a very Australian thing. I try and explain that to people overseas that we there's we yeah. have ways of making swear words into you know. In you know endearing things to say to each other, and no one quite believes it. Just Definitely. because everyone you know, <laughs> everyone pretty much bases the word "cunt" on how Americans say it, and Americans when Americans oh, yeah. say it, it just sounds really horrible. So, but Australians yeah. say it, you're like, yeah, I want to be a cunt yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we are choice cunts. Thank yeah, you. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I did make those drums piss. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I just remember like the confusion of like I I don't really know if that's a positive thing or a negative thing. Anyway, I'll I'll not forget that. That was um, yeah. that was such a a great like regional experience. Coffs <laughs> Harbour. First regional tour. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's come leaps and bounds since 2000 or whenever I, we were there. I hope so. Yeah. I've not been for a long time. Yes. Well, actually, on a side note, mm. I I read your Wikipedia, which felt weird because. You're my mate, and it was felt wrong. But um, <laughs> I never knew that your birth name wasn't Cav. No, I was born Finlay Beaton, which was Beaton was my dad's last name. But my dad didn't really have much to do with my upbringing, so I eventually changed it to Temperley, which is my mum's last name, and put the Beaton in the middle. Um, and then Cavian is a Sanyasin name, so um, I'll let pod listeners go and do all of the. Uh, research they want on that and the, and the best way to do that is just watch the amazing documentary called wild wild country so go, oh that's amazing it is a ripping yarn so go check that out and then you can kind of judge me after that but what is your relationship then did you come from like a cultish kind of upbringing um not really i mean the whole thing i mean and you kind of get maybe you get a, in a sense of it if you watch the wild wild country um doco but it you know the whole sannyasin thing was more of a movement of you know people kind of coming together and doing meditation and and it came out of an era where you know the late 60s early 70s where 
you know, the world was a pretty conservative place and you needed, you needed to have an element of radicalism if you wanted to actually kind of bust out of that. So, so that's, you know, where the whole, you know, Sanyas and orange people thing comes out of. They're all just like, yeah, middle finger to the man. It was, it was very kind of, um, you know, you know, this, the lots of people were doing it in their own way. Um, but it was yeah. a, a lot about kind of breaking out of those old school, you know, um, names, you know, like in Europe and, and all these places where people where a name is a really heavy thing. So, um, people kind of really just, you know, got rid of that and tried to start again in a spiritual sense. Um, so it wasn't a religious thing at all. It was more about people coming together and, and doing stuff. But if, if like you, a community. Yeah. But it, it, you know, and it got massive because it was, cause what, um, this guy Osho or Bhagwan was quite, um, well known for is he, um, invented some different forms of meditation, which were really appealed to Westerners because it was about group meditation. Whereas meditation had traditionally been this, like, go sit on a mountaintop by yourself until, you know, you, you've, you know, the gates of heaven open in front of you. So it's, uh, so it was more about a practical day to day, you know, you, you do your morning meditation and then you go to the office and do your thing. So it was it appealed to Westerners. Um, but of yeah. course, as time will tell us over and over again, if you get lots of people together and, and money starts to come involved and there's a certain amount of power that's involved, there's always going to be someone who steps up and is just like, this is awesome. I want all the power and all the money. And that's what happened with this character, Sheila, who came into the whole um, thing and tried to kind of turn it into a religion and then ran, you know, jumped on a jet airplane after they tried to kill someone, um, you know, who, who'd gotten really close to um, Osho, like the doctor. Um, so they were like, yeah, let's kill him. That seems like a great idea. <laughs> like, so, which clearly is just absolutely insane. And, um, and yeah, they, the one thing they didn't talk about in the doco is that she apparently, um, had like, um, had a bag full of $50 million, um, when Whoa. she left. And I think that, cause that's the first time she's ever done an interview about any of it. Um, and I was like, and I was, which is amazing. Um, but if you see it, she's in this kind of, she owns a nursing home in Switzerland and that would cost quite a lot of money. So clearly sure. she kind of stashed some cash and then, uh, you know, has been living in neutral Switzerland ever since. So the whole entire, I mean, if you take any of mine, you know, growing up in it, out of it, the whole entire thing is just an absolutely fascinating story. But my, but the Sanyasin thing was massive in Fremantle where I live because it, cause Fremantle, you know, if you take the Sanyasin thing into it and a whole lot of other stuff as well. It's always been a, a, like a real kind of um, just it's always it's been a magnet for all kind of alternate lifestyle ideas. Like it's always been really accepted. And and growing up in Fremantle as a musician, um, you could kind of say to people like, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" And you say, "Oh, I play music." And no one would ever go, "Yeah, but what's your real job?" They'd just be like, "Oh, yeah, cool, don't worry," because everyone's parents were artists and stuff. And Fremantle evolved as this place um, because it was like an Italian, you know, uh, Greek fishing village, basically. And all and all the warehouses were really cheap. So all the artists moved in in the late 70s and started to set up all these kind of art spaces. And so it's still got that vibe, but also they all had kids, which is like my generation. In terms of um, sannyasin, sorry to go back to this, yeah. it's fascinating to mm. me, after, especially after watching that documentary. Mm. Was there a community of of people that meditated together and yeah, changed their names. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there was a there was a whole community of people um there and again a lot of it was based around I mean there was meditation that was happening and obviously you know you get a bunch of like-minded people that hang out and they have discos together and they have a restaurant yeah. that they all hang out. <laughs> you know, that's just the nature of how it goes because sure. you want to hang out with you with your peeps. 
Um, but uh, also there was a lot of um, alternate um, healing going on as well. So a lot of stuff that, I mean, even to do with the, a lot of the stuff that's fascinating about the sannyasin thing is that we kind of, it's all absorbed into popular culture now and, we, and it's not very radical anymore. Like, you know, but no. then it was like, whoa, radical. And it was, and so a lot of the things is like, you know, all these things like Reiki and that, you know, um, and all these kind of forms of healing that we're now like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah. I'm going to go and get this happening now. And everyone knows exactly what it is. All of these, it was all these people kind of getting together and studying all these different, you know, alternate styles of healing and meditation and counseling. And so it was really about that as well, about people coming together and kind of step, stepping out of the mainstream a bit, I guess. And what's your relationship with it all now? Well, I mean, I kind of got into it in different ways at different points in my life. And one of the, um, I guess the first point was like when I was about seven and um, I took sannyas and Sheila actually gave me my mala and went out in Fremantle, which is pretty wild. Um, wow. And so I was kind of there and I just enjoyed the community because my mum was into it as well. So I was, it was quite a, you know, positive experience. Um, and then I kind of, that kind of faded away a bit and I became a bit of a bogan in Fremantle. Um, and <laughs> my mum was like, I think, it, you know, at that point in time, um, you know, it was all about, you know, you had to kind of like ACDC and stuff and Fremantle was a, sure. a, a little bit of a backwater. Um, so she took me to India when I was about 13 and I met all the kids from this school. There's like a sannyasin school in, um, Devon in England uh, and, they were they were just amazing they were just so switched on and so present and i and I, it was just mind blowing after coming out of Fremantle where everyone was kind of just you know not evolved basically and and so i would i just was like mum i don't know how we're going to do this but i really want to go to this school so i left on like a two like a two month holiday to india to kind of see other horizons and I ended up going to this school in, in Devon in this place called Koswan. And so I kind of reconnected with the sannyasin thing at that point in time, but it was more about, you know, it, it wasn't really, it was, it had evolved into something completely different again. So it was more about this school community and how the kids communicated with each other. And, and, uh, it was just like an alternative boarding school basically, but they had an amazing, um, music, um, room there because they had a music festival there once a year so and this sounds really bad saying it in hindsight but you've got to remember what was happening in Fremantle so I just started to play music I was like playing the bass and I was listening to Guns N' Roses and ACDC and I was <laughs> like yeah that's cool but then when I got to England like dance music had just kind of exploded the whole rave culture it was mm. like 1991 and so it was like the rave culture was happening and so I went to this the a little you know music um room that we had and I, I rediscovered people like Sting and I know that sounds terrible but it was a really healthy <laughs> thing at the time because it really got me out of this kind of you know it basically took the blinkers off and so when I I, I, I stayed at this school for about a year and then I eventually I was like hey I really think I I'm kind of want to go home because I left on a two-month holiday and I've been away for a year and a half um, yeah. so I was like 14 at, by this stage and so I went home and um and all my friends had gone deeper into the, the Bogan thing. We're all into like death metal and stuff now. <laughs> so I was like, I just kind of was like, oh, wow, I've got nothing in common with these guys. So it was great because it also kind of made me relook at, you know, my friendship groups and go, okay, you know, let's, I want people around me who, you know, who are open to life and everything. And so I kind yeah. of reconnected with a bunch of my primary school friends and, and the music oh. thing uh, was a huge thing because I came back and I was like, no, I don't want to play heavy metal. I actually want to. 
I want to play everything, you know. So I, I really, yeah. I really started. I want to be just like Sting. That's right. <laughs> I just want to sing like <laughs> this all the time. Um, uh, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I d- so yeah, I just you know I continued to lack sting for a little while until I thankfully grew out of that. Um, but it al- it just it allowed me to I got real I started to get really really technical in my in my bass playing. So I thought I was going to go and become a jazz bass player at the Conservatorium in Perth, and thankfully that never happened. Um, so I I did. How many th- strings did your bass have? At well, this point? I had four, but I was thinking about I was like I really need a six string bass. Oh no! You know it was oh, it was a, it was another sliding doors moment in my life, and um, <laughs> but no, I was only sixteen, and they were like, yeah, technically you could do this if you want to, but we'd prefer you to come back after you finish high school. And I was like, no worries. And then magically in that year between sixteen and seventeen, I rediscovered like the Velvet Underground, all the great Beatles records, Neil Young, Harvest. The pixies and all these things and I was like I don't want to fucking play jazz I want to I just want to be cool and play like cool music so um so that was a, that was a massive saving grace that I didn't end up you know with a carrot up my bottom yeah <laughs> and so were, were you always kind of drawn to bass as your instrument then I don't know how I ended After up you came back yeah I guess so I'm not quite sure it's a, it's a bit of a ridiculous story why I ended up on the bass I played the violin for years when I was like seven to twelve and I thought, yeah, so did I. And without actually questioning what, uh, you know, strings, I was like, oh, basses have got four strings. Maybe I'll be the bass player. You know, <laughs> they're completely <laughs> different strings. They're like, they're actually just there's there's not really any relation between the two instruments. But um, <laughs> but I, you know, I kind of got into it, and it definitely um, being a songwriter and a bass player, I think, um, definitely changes how you approach things. Um, you know, you just you know, again, Sting is a, is a good example. Once again, you know, <laughs> he, he plays bass and he sings and, and Paul McCartney and there's a certain way yeah. that, that uh, these people approach melodies, which I think um, if if you ha- if bass is your primary instrument, you know, you do approach it in a different way, like if you're a piano player or a guitar player. Definitely. So when did you start your first band then? So around about this time of me getting, like suddenly discovering, you know, the Pixies and all these fantastic bands, um, when I was about between 16 and 17, I started my first band with Joel and uh, we, oh. we, we kind of lived through a really fun era of music called funk metal um, <laughs> where, where um, you know, it was okay to have like distorted. Like Primus. Yeah, like it was okay to yeah. have a distorted guitar and a slap bass and, and all the rest of it. Oh, God. I know. Oh, God, indeed. <laughs> But again, <laughs> sliding doors, Sayer. Um, there was so in, while this was all going on, and me and Joel had started our first band, and we were, you know, making up these kind of like, you know, doing all these kinds of things, um, you know, which was the start of the Tams. Um, I um I was writing these kind of like folk. Um, kind of Pixies songs, basically. They just sounded like the Pixies, but if a folk band was playing it, like if Violent Femmes were playing, you know, the Pixies. And, oh, and that, that sounds cool. And yeah, so that was what I was actually interested in. But I was, you know, you're in a group, you know, you're doing what everyone else is doing. Like, yeah, let's write funk metal sure. songs. Um, so, uh, so. <laughs> Flip w- by solo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I was writing a lot of them with Stu and so this, so at the same time as I was doing Freud's Pillow, yes, that was the name of our first band. It's such a funk metal name, isn't it? Like Freud's Pillow. <laughs> so stupid. Um, Why? What was that? What was that with his pillow? What was that about? Oh, well, Simon Leach, who, who was the bass player in the band, who went on to do Little Birdie and stuff. 
Um, oh, yeah. He, um, he came up, he was older, so he was, you know, obviously a little bit more learned. And he was like, well, Freud did a lot of, you know, work with dreams. And so his pillow oh, must have been pretty important. So Freud's pillow I it was. I thought maybe people lie down on the couch and have their head on the pillow. Well, he would there's that, but there's, there was also like, you know, a bit of a double entente going on where it was also like a pillow slip, a Freudian slip, you know. Oh. So many layers. <laughs> um <laughs> But, I love it. Yeah. I love first band names are my favourite. Uh, <laughs> there could be a whole so podcast good. on that on my first band. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so me and Stu were writing a lot of these. I was kind of jamming with Stu and I was, uh, Fremantle has this amazing cafe culture. Um, so um, we were, I was working in um, the, this cafe in Fremantle and then they had a, like, you know, basically anytime we could, we'd, there was a music night and we would go and play our folk, folk pixie songs. And, um, and Joel, at this point in time, thankfully was like, "I think funk metal's kind of shit. <laughs> like, it's, can I can I come and join your band?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, let's do it." And so we we started writing a bunch of songs, and then we we had this one pretty silly song. It was like a Joker song, and we were like, "Oh yeah, cool. If we write f- like four more of them, then and we enter the campus band competition, maybe we could win." Um, and that's how it all happened. And we, we did that and that was Eskimo Joe and we, our third gig was like wow. the campus band finals and we won the whole thing. So we just haven't looked back. <laughs> and was that the sweater song? Is that, that was what, sweater. That yeah. So that award? yeah, sweater was the silly song. We were like, yeah, this is great. You know, let's, let's do, let's do more <laughs> of that. And uh, our, and the campus band finals was at the Tivoli in Brisbane. So, oh, wow. yeah. So every time we go to the Tivoli and we get to play there, we kind of feel like there's this kind of, you know like a sacred place for us. We're like, this is where it all began. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And what a beautiful venue to have that. Yeah, in. absolutely. So what, what's your relationship like with the sweater song now? I know it's one of those songs that people yell out and you probably never play again. Well, I, I like the fact that it's become like people yelling out the song. People know more about the idea that you yell out that name than actually knowing the song. But we, yeah. re- we recently did um, uh, a bunch of orchestra shows, which were absolutely amazing and we're we're doing one in Brisbane actually in the next little while um yeah but uh yeah so we you know presented our whole back catalogue and and there was a kind of a a majority unfortunately of people in the band who were like yeah let's let's play sweater that'll be great and and all I could think was like we've got a fucking symphony orchestra finally and you want to bring sweater back out and literally it lasted half of the first rehearsal and everyone looked around thankfully and was just like this is a terrible idea let's let's not do this (laughs) Um, because, you know, again, it was like my relationship with the song is that I'm thankful and I think it's cool and cute and stuff, but I don't, I would hate to be in a position like someone like Silverchair where they've got this like mega hit that they wrote when they were 13 yeah. years old, you know, with the, with their jug jug oh, yeah, guitar tough. sounds and, and have to play it at every single gig that I think that would be a little bit soul destroying. So I think it's okay for artists at any point in time. They don't have to disown it, but they can just say, no, nah, I'm not going to play that anymore because I'm done. I, I don't really want to do that. So we, yeah, uh, that song died in Adelaide. We went to Adelaide, and for some reason, we will always go to Adelaide, and then we get to and we play that, play a song. And we're like, let's not play this song anymore. Um, and, and that's what ha- that's what <laughs> like happened. A grave, yeah, grave exactly. If you dig down, <laughs> just below the surface in Adelaide, you can find all the old Eskimo Joe songs. But there, but there's um, yeah, we went to Adelaide and uh, we played the song. We came off stage and we're like, oh. Let's let's not do this anymore. Let's let's write wow. some let's write, let's write some new songs. So let's go go a bit forward to when you 
you released the well to me who someone who like I hadn't seen you play for a long time mm. and I'd sort of just you know run into you guys every now and again but I remember when you um when you guys had the black fingernails red wine I feel like that suddenly you were like launched into a fucking huge successful place and probably up a few tax brackets um do you remember <laughs> when that happened yeah do you remember the feeling you had when that happened I think I think it's one of those things that like you always look back at and just be like, oh, if I was in that position again, I'd probably, you know, take a deep breath and, and just enjoy the moment. I, I think, the, you know, the thing that gets you to that moment in the first place is you're always looking ahead. You're going, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be really ambitious and I'm going to do this next thing. Um, and I think that that was the same with that. You know, I was like, I was at that point in time, like, really driven to to do something you know it's that whole thing you know the metaphor if you get the top, to the top of one mountain and you're like oh yeah but look at that mountain peak you know so I think uh yes we did appreciate it but I, I mean like I remember like the album had like it was on it was number one for a couple of weeks and then we went away and we came back and it was like number one again it had gone back and I remember like like Stu's wife had made me um her famous meatballs and um, I was sitting in the kitchen by myself and um, going, oh, wow, we're back at number one again. And I was eating these meatballs by myself. And, and I think back and I'm like, that's actually quite a lonely memory, you know, like I'd spent, I'd spent all this time on the road and stuff. And I was like, you know, and you do these crazy things like decide that you can't have a relationship. And, and there's a certain amount yeah. of uh, truth in that as well, because, you know, if you're just going to throw yourself into being that person and like stepping into that skin of being the rock star, and that was what Black Fingernails was all about. Like w it, it was a concept to start with. We we sat down and wrote, you know, the best songs we could write about real experiences in our lives and all the rest of it. But the whole idea as well is that we were going to kind of step into this idea of like, well, what does it feel like? Imagine if we just pretend we're really huge rock stars. Like what what's going <laughs> to what, what would that what would happen there? Um, and we did it. And lo and behold, it, it worked, you know, like, and it, it really came off the back of, we'd, we'd, we'd re released a record called A Song is a City and we were really proud of it. Like I, I was really proud of the songwriting and the production and we'd taken a massive, you know, um, grabbed it by the horns and really, you know, driven the whole thing ourselves and recorded a lot of ourselves and really like been there the whole entire time and not left anything to chance. And we were super stoked with it. And we went to the um, ARIA Awards and... Um, and we thought at that point in time, you know, if you're going to the Arias, it was kind of like going to the school ball, you know, you had to like get, yeah. your, get yourself like a, a really nice suit and, you know, and we, so we did that and we got there and we were pretty much like dorks in suits and, and we got, and we got there and we were up for like eight Aria awards and we lost pretty much every single one of them to Jet and every single time yeah, right. Jet, Jet got on stage they weren't dressed in suits. They were like, they had like leather jackets with no t-shirts on and like their hair was all over the place. Someone <laughs> was wearing thongs on stage. And I, and I, and I think the penny dropped. It was like, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough just to be, you know, write these songs and, and produce this music that you thought was, you know, um, world-class. You actually had to be this image of what people wanted, if you know what I mean. They don't want to buy the guy next door. They want to buy the person on the stage. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, let's, and I'm sure many bands have done this over, over the years after they've experimented for a while. 
But it, so I was like, okay, let's be a rock star. So what does a rock star wear? So I got myself some black stretch tight jeans. I got myself a black leather jacket, <laughs> dyed my hair black, painted my fingernails Took black. Your shirt off. Yeah, I oh, know. I kept my shirt on. That was one thing I wasn't quite prepared to do. Um, you know, some people look great with their shirt off on stage. I, I just, it's just not me. Um, but so I kept my shirt on and, um, and so, and then I, a pirate shirt. (laughs) (laughs) There was no pirate shirts, thankfully. No. Uh, Um, but yeah, I just kind of got into this character of the rock star. So as we got to this point and, and the record came up, even writing up to the writing of the record, you see pictures of all of us in that point. And we still kind of look like these dudes who wrote a song as a city, you know, we're kind of a little bit like, you know, like the dudes next door. And then then we, it's kind of like you can just kind of like you walk through another sliding door and sudden, yeah. and suddenly we were kind of like looked like these rock stars. We'd also had a few experiences where we'd gone overseas and, and had lost some really big um, uh, opportunities and as far as record deals go because we weren't kind oh. of, we weren't quite rock star enough for it all. Um, so is that the feedback you got or is that just the feeling you had? That was a bit of the feeling that we had. We kind of, we thought that, you know, you could just, it sounds terrible, but it was a bit of that kind of the night, you know, we were a little bit too over aware of when we went overseas. We were like, oh yeah, cool. And we were like, you know, approaching it like scientists. And then we were like, no, they don't, they actually want the kind of, you know, aloof, nonchalant rock star dude, you know, they don't, they don't want the person who's super self-aware. So we, um. We yeah, so we we kind of got into this character, and so I watched uh, watched Jet, you know, beat us at all these these awards, and I was like, okay, cool, I'm just gonna I'm gonna try this out, I'm gonna pretend to be that guy for a while and see what happens, and lo and behold, it worked, and but the other side of it was me sitting alone in a <laughs> kitchen eating meatballs as our album got went back to number one. <laughs> I wasn't like sitting there with my Aww. wife just going, isn't life great, darling? You know, like I was it there was a, definitely an isolation in it, and I think you unfortunately. Um, have to choose that lifestyle for a while if you want to be that person because it has to yeah, be so sure. single-minded, you know, the whole pursuit of it. And so all those, all like, you know, we were still doing those kind of regional shows that, that you know, we did with you guys and, but, you know, the crowds got a bit bigger again, a bit bigger again. And it was a kind of all like a build-up. So by the time the, the record had broken and we were starting to do these bigger shows and we were playing the big day outs and those kinds of things, all those people who had been playing to for ages were like suddenly there, you know, and it was just a, a kind of a tipping point moment as well. Wow. That's so interesting that it was like an experiment. But I wonder if, first of all, I wonder if Jet were lonely when they were doing <laughs> it. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I wonder if it was also because you wrote songs that somehow connected more with people than the previous songs or that it was just a point in your career where you'd done a few albums and... And, you know, you were just sort of naturally building up an audience. Well, I wonder if it's probably a bit, bit of a culmination of absolutely. all of those things. Absolutely. I, th- I think most most people who really enjoy r- making records, you know, as part of the art form of it all, really want to experiment mm. all the time. And they're, they're always thinking about that next thing of how they can push the boat out a little bit further. And, and I think Black Fingernails was that moment where it all just kind of worked in a really kind of cool way. Um, and there was certainly some records after that where it, where certain parts of it worked and certain parts of it didn't work, but there was a real synergy yeah. about Black Fingernails where it all just kind of the stars aligned kind of moment. Um, yeah, I definitely remember that. It was, it was such a weird thing to, to see from an outsider's point of view who'd sort of, you know, known you for a long time. Sure. Like whoa, they 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 made it. <laughs> <laughs> they did it. Um, but they it's funny because it. I just I just finished like um in, I mean I don't know when I'm allowed to 
talk about it, but um, next week I'm announcing the release of a solo record that I've been working on for about two years. And it's and it all and it almost feels like a full kind of circle moment. Like I'm going back to that place where I'm just you know trying to write songs that are just that are a bit more honest and not really. I've 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 done that thing where I've tried on the different skins and all the rest of it. And so the experiment with this one is to actually not have the skins on this time. You know, to actually just kind of be a bit more raw and a bit more real with it. And I wonder. And I, I the the thing that I always analyze is is how I sing. Um, and the, the, the records that I find really hard to go back and listen to are the ones where I've kind of tried on this kind of character and it hasn't quite worked. And, and the voice is the one part where you're like, oh, yeah, it's all there, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> so there's some records because we've just been re-releasing all of our um, back catalogue with Eskies on vinyl. Um, so I've been going back and listening to these records again, which I haven't listened to in like, you know, a decade and uh, and it's and it's some some moments I'm like oh this is great this is much better than I remember it being and some <laughs> and some of the uh, some of it I'm just like yeah I'd probably do that differently this time around if I if I you know yeah. had a bit more headspace so well, um, that's the beauty of hindsight isn't it mm-hmm. but I I remember having a um, when we were touring together and we we're both signed to Modular mm. Records that album that you released was it Girl yeah that record yeah. I listen to that so much and I'm sure, you know, I listen to those songs live a billion times too, but of course. Um, I remember really liking that record and I, I can't imagine that that would be shameful to go back and listen to. No, that's a beautiful pop songs. That, that album like was one, obviously the first one that we, we reissued and I hadn't literally, I literally hadn't sat down and listened to that record um, in a long time. And it was really cool because there were songs like Who Sold Her Out, which again died in Adelaide, you know, a few years later. Um, <laughs> but I went back to listen to that and I was like, this sounds great. This is a cool song. You know, yeah, like we should totally play this so again. Bad. You know, I would I would play that song again. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes it's that whole kind of culling, you know, that allows the, the space for you to write the new songs. There's that, that whole thing of, you know, artists only write new songs because they're bored of their old songs, you know. <laughs> there's so yes. there's such a truth in that. Um, but no, Girl was, going back and listening to Girl was was really cool and I I don't have any kind of weird, cringy, knee-jerk reactions with that one. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. I remember that line. It's so weird that this one line sticks in my head from that record. I always remember the line where you sing, um, I don't know how the lights in your house work. And I think I just always really liked it because I imagined you like getting a new girlfriend and not being able to find the light switch in a room. <laughs> Do you know what I love about it? Because that, that's not even the lyric. Isn't it? <laughs> no. What is it? It was, it, was, it was more of a metaphor. It's like, uh, it's like none of the, like, it's like none of the lights in your housework. So it's meant to be oh. like, you know, you wake up some days and your head, head hurts. It's like none of the lights in your housework. I like my version better. I love your version. I think it's heaps cooler. <laughs> and I think that's that's the number one thing about songwriting is you should never over-explain anything to anyone. No. Because everyone should have their own <laughs> lyrical interpretation of songs. <laughs> Do you have like a, a line from one of your songs that you are really impressed with still <laughs> or or one that you are like brutally ashamed of? Um, there's probably lots of both. Um, I remember... Uh, you know, it's it's sometimes with me, it's about kind of nailing some kind of uh, feeling that you've had and you kind of put it into words for the first time. You're like, yeah, that's exactly what what I meant to say. And uh, I remember on Girl, there was a, a line um, which I said, and it's weird because I, I was talking about kissing your wife goodnight and I, I don't have a, I didn't have a wife at that point in time. But, um, yeah. but uh, this, 
uh, uh, the line was, you kiss your wife goodnight and she tastes just like dreams and fever. And I love that. I'd, oh. And it was that idea of, That's you know, nice. that, just that, that, you know, that taste or that feeling that someone has when they've, when they're kind of just, um, you know, when they've woken up, when they've gone to sleep for five seconds and the taste that they have in their yeah. mouth, you know. So I, sure, that, that's nice. That was always a, a good moment, and there was lots. Of, there was lots of moments in From the Sea where, um, I, when I was writing that record, I was doing lots of um, uh, walking from my house just out of Fremantle into Fremantle and back again. And there was lots. Of, there was lots of that idea of you know, uh, you know, rising anxiety and all of the kind of you know feelings that come with it. So there's lots of lines in that song that I, I still kind of listen to, and I don't. I don't feel bad about it <laughs> you know yeah. I don't think I can improve on it <laughs> tell me one that you feel bad about oh boy um let me think I probably <laughs> shut lots of them out of my um memory I don't I I would have to go back and do some research again because they're probably songs that I've I've thrown out um yeah yeah in Adelaide yeah in Adelaide, in Adelaide yeah. now. yes <laughs> just below the surface in a shallow grave <laughs> a calves crappy lyrics <laughs> Yeah, we all have them. I I remember so many like shameful lyrics that I wrote when I was 18. But you know, it's part of growing up. It's, it is. It's fine. Yep. yep. <laughs> I was I was talking about I mean everyone has a different way that they approach songwriting and I always like to imagine that you know, I don't really ever write in character so much like I'm never like I like, you know, Eleanor Rigby or anything like that. Um, yeah. I, for me, it's always these kind of reports from the front line of what's going on in my life. And I feel like that's the only truth that you can write about is yourself. Um, and, uh, but the way that I always explain my writing, cause I, there's always a kind of, uh, element of automatic writing when I write, I just kind of let, let my subconscious kind of go bleh onto the page and then I'll kind of arrange mm. it afterwards. Um, so I always call it my magic number generator because, <laughs> you know, you, you put stuff in and it goes boop, 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 and comes out the other side. So Yeah. Does, and it seems to work. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> I love the different ways people write. Like some people make mind maps. Yeah. Some people um, just get a rhyming dictionary and then see what, what they can make sense out of. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, a, that seems like a cheater's version of songwriting, doesn't it, really? It does. You but know. I think it's also like... I don't know. I, f I find it so interesting to um, to see how other people do it. And I'm sure people do it in all sorts of different ways themselves. Like I never write a song the way the same way. And sometimes it comes out so quickly and other times you spend months slaving over it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that makes li the line any better or worse. Some That's just the nature of songwriting, no. right? Sometimes you've got to go through every single lyric and chord until you get it right. And sometimes it's just a flash of lightning that goes onto the page. Yeah. And computers have changed things so much now too, where mm. you can literally take a chorus out and put a different chorus in. Thankfully, it's gone hand in hand with, you know, the, the bottom dropping out of the financial side. So none of us <laughs> will ever be able to go and record rumours again where we just hang out, you know. Talking, oh, talking about a tambourine nice. track for a month or two. <laughs> I would love that. There's a lot to unpack yeah. of, of a tambourine track. <laughs> there is. Hey, that's a good line. There's a lot to unpack <laughs> in a tambourine track. <laughs> if you Were you just trying to be Cypress Hill? I don't know what I was, but yeah, there was a bit of that. I, I just need to get a bit more Cypress on that. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> Actually, you know what? In that, that era when we were, when we were um, it's funny to think about now because... 
you know, if, let's go let's go there. Drugs and popular music. You know, alcohol, yeah. obviously people drink alcohol and go on stage in varying degrees of soberness or not, depending on how their their mind works, whether they can handle it. Yep. But like weed is one of those ones as well where I'm like, you know, I kind of put it in, into the same category as alcohol a lot of the time. You know, the people who don't work well on weed will be like, no, that stuff's dangerous, man. Um, but I don't, <laughs> I definitely don't put it in the same category as like hard drugs. Um, but when we right. were... Um, when we were driving around, I've always smoked weed when I've written songs. It's just a really easy way to get straight to the source, you know. Um, but but when you step on stage to uh, perform, weed is not your friend. Um, it, <laughs> and I definitely we definitely <laughs> learned that because we used to drive around in this Tarago. We did these humongous tours in the early days where we were like, because we're from the West, we had to make that, you know, plane ticket last oh, yeah. as long as possible. So we would yeah. go these 10-week trips up and down the East Coast. Um, it, and we would drive around, you know, on a, with a cassette player, um, playing Cypress Hill <laughs> and we would like, we, we, we called them the joint clips where the, these little clips where you could open up the, the little windows at the back of the Tarago and we, we'd sit there like smoking weed as we're driving along up and down the East Coast during the day. And then we get on stage that night and, and play a show. And it's amazing to think about now. But I remember like... Sounds so hard. I, yeah, it's a hard life, man. Um, but, but I remember like one time and I think... I think we were in like Ballarat or some really cold place, but we got there and there was like five people in the audience and we were like, we're just like, fuck it. Let's just, let's smoke a number and go on stage. And we went on stage and I, th I think Stu was, was wiser at this point in time. He was just like, that sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea. But me and Joel were like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And we went on stage and then we instantly looked at each other was like, this was a really bad idea because <laughs> the two just don't work. You know, great if you're sitting down and, you know, putting things into your magic number generator to write lyrics, but not so great if you're uh, <laughs> stepping on stage, pulling on your yeah. rock star skin. Yeah. I can relate. I have a really funny story about Regurgitator doing it. So we, um, at the time, I'm not going to say where we are because I'm scared someone's going <laughs> to Yes. No, but no. we were somewhere yep. and um, we were about to play a show and I don't, I don't smoke pot at all because mm -hmm. I get really paranoid. Yep. And Quan is really straight edge. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't do anything. Yeah. So this one night we looked out and, you know, it was there was an audience, but I, I think there were like <laughs> a, like five cross-eyed people in the front row. Oh, no. <laughs> we were like, oh. Yeah. We decided, fuck it. We're all going to share a joint before we play. All of you. And oh, dear. Yeah, all four of us. Jesus. And um, so I was pretty much like, I'll do it if Quan does it. And Quan said, I'll do it if Saya does it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we all got high and then we tried to play this show. And our stage guy at the time, um, Hugh, he had played all these tricks on us. Oh, dear. So he, this was so funny. Like I, I've never laughed so much on stage in my life. Like. <laughs> I picked up my tambourine and it had a feather boa gaffer tape to it. And I was like, whoa, like I couldn't quite <laughs> shake it. <laughs> and Quan had a um, a pedal that was next to his like pedal board. Mm. Or I don't even think he had a pedal board at the time. He was just like pedals on the ground. Mm -hmm. And there was a pedal made of soft cheese <laughs> that it had like some leads plugged into it. That is awesome. <laughs> He'd like made a little sign for it and it had like an upside down bottle cap as like the, you know, the yeah. button to push. That's so um, great. And I can't really remember what, what he did to Ben and Pete, but fuck, it was funny. Uh, anyway, that was, that's the only time and it was, it was really stressful and I think I spent the whole hour 
pissing myself about the uh, the cheese pedal. Oh, the cheese pedal. That's my favourite part of it. I love it that they did pranks that were like would appeal to a stone person yeah. as well. It wasn't they just yeah. like, you know, oh, we're going to like cut the belt off your pants so you suddenly have to accidentally moon the audience. Like that's pretty traumatic totally. even if you're sober. But they're just like, let's yeah. make a cheese pedal. <laughs> that's genius. Yeah. So um, that's the, the, yeah, that's the only time. And I remember seeing someone um, crowd surf and then they fell on their head and I was like, oh man. I'm like that anyway. Like when I see people, I just get really concerned about people hurting themselves. And so I I literally have to shut off and not look at anyone in the audience because if I see them fall, I'm like, oh, oh, are they okay? You know, like I just can't help but think about it. It's terrible. I'm so un Do people crowd serve at your gigs? No, because most of the people, our kind of demographic, actually we've got a bizarre, our demographic is really quite large. We have like really little kids there, like, you know, like eight-year-olds who are like, we love Eskimo Joe. And then we have like, <laughs> you know, people who kind of came up with us who are all kind of in their mid to, mid-30s to late-40s. Um, and then we have like 70 and 80 year olds there as well. It's really, wow. it's very bizarre. And they all seem to kind of have got into it at different times, but there's a, it's a very specific kind of person who seems to get into Eskimo Joe and it's like, they, yeah, they're very, they re- you know, like probably like any band, they, do, they, it becomes like a family thing and they all listen to it in the family yeah. and then they like, yeah, let's go, go to Eskimo Joe as a family. So it's where that, we're a family band basically. That's so nice. It is. I don't. I think any any <laughs> band who any band who has any following will always be like, oh yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if we had those people following us, which is such a shit thing to say. I mean, we're so blessed that people actually love yeah. our band and have stuck with us o- for more than four years of our career. So yeah. so it's awesome, is what it is, Sarah. It is awesome. What demographic are you missing? Do you want me to? We'll make some noise, <laughs> try and get some people. <laughs> I think we all want that demographic which is the elusive and it's like a moving target because they change every year. Um, but those kind of like late teens to mid twenties, you know, which is, we all, I think we all had that demographic for like, you know, again, like a two to three year period. And then again, I think we're really lucky if you can like maintain any of those people and bring them with you. But, uh, but we haven't had probably those people into us in the same way since we were, you know, that age ourselves. Yeah, that's a tough demographic. It is. And I think only bands like the drones get the get those dudes. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, the drone the drones kind of, yeah, I guess they do kind of sit outside of it. But even those guys would get a certain section of that demographic. I mean, I find it, I don't know if, I'm, I don't think I'm cynical because I love music and I listen, I'm always looking for new great music, whether, it, whether the record came out yesterday or 30 years ago. Um, I'm always on the hunt. And, uh, but I do listen to Triple J a lot and I'll, I'll, there's people ringing in and they'll be like, oh yeah, man, I've just listened to this track and I can't believe how I love their, their dope beats and blah, 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 blah. And it's someone who I've like, I've never heard of this person. Like (laughs) I I even listen to Triple J all the time and I've never heard this track on Triple J. So how do these people find this stuff and get into it? So I don't, you know, there's obviously a whole world out there for me to discover. It's the beauty of the internet and home recording. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so tell me about recording songs for the purpose of solo songs compared to songs that, you know, that's be- behind a band that's been around for such a long time. Well, um, obviously, um, 
it's such a collaborative experience doing Eskimo Joe. Like I'll I'll bring in the bare bones of a song and usually it'll be like a bit of a chorus and a bit of a verse and a bit of a vibe and we, you know, we workshop that together until it is a song which always sounds like an Eskimo Joe song because Eskimo Joe is the sum of its parts. But, you know, you do have that thing and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you've made a solo record. It's that thing in the back of your mind. You'd be like, well, what, what would happen if it was just, I just followed my ideas all the way through. Mm. Um, and it's, and so... I, I guess I kind of went into it like that, but the problem is, is when you first go in there, it, you you literally are the kid in the candy store and you're like, I just want to use every single flavor and every single thing that I've always, when I've brought it up in the band, they've said, no, we can't do that. You know, so you, yeah. you almost have to write the, the band out of your system. Um, and I, I probably wrote a whole record before I got to a point where I'm like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. Um, and I had all kinds of concepts of what I wanted it to be and, you know, I wanted it to be this and I wanted it to be that. But it always comes down to just um, good, honest songwriting. And when it, 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 and I think with the solo stuff for me, it really started to get to a place where it was magical again when I started to write songs that um, I stopped thinking about all these songs that I could write because I could write any song I wanted to and I could be in any character because, you know, I'm not Eskimo Joe dude anymore. Um, so it definitely got to a point where, I, yeah, I started to write just real honest songs about my life again and, um, and songs that I could just sit down and, and play on an acoustic guitar. My, my favorite era of, um, production and, and songwriting really is that kind of early seventies, you know, um, you know, Neil Young harvest kind of sounding vibe. So I kind of, yeah, I had, beautiful. I had that in the back of my mind a lot of the time, but but I had to go through a process to get to the point. I wrote an EP with, uh, well, I wrote the EP and recorded it with a chap called Pip Norman, who's a really lovely guy who's down in Melbourne. And we did that. And through that process, there was uh, like two of the songs that we wrote. Um, I was like, yeah, cool. We're getting somewhere now. And then I sat down to write the record with that in the back of my mind. Like I had this, it took me a while to get like, I guess like a sound palette together. And once I kind of had that yeah. in the back of my mind, it, it all came pretty easily. But the thing about writing a solo record is everything, and when you're used to being in a band with two other people who all definitely pull their weight the whole time, um, is it just takes a really long time because <laughs> yeah, everything you're like, okay, now to write a drum part. Who's going to do that? Oh, that's me yeah. again. Okay, cool. All right, uh, let's write a keyboard part. <laughs> who's going to do that? Oh, yeah. yep, that's that's me again. Okay, who's going to play the <laughs> keyboard part? Ah, shit, that's me again. So every everything just uh, totally. took quite a long time, and and it's great. It was a really it's a really cool place to go to because it's almost like once you kind of go there, it's hard to come back from. You know, you're like you've experienced yeah. what it is to expand and and just actually you know be on top of it. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I don't know how you, I didn't really know how to approach it when I first started, but it, but it just kind of organically as after just working through songs, it wasn't like I wrote my first five songs and were like, brilliant, that there's the record. Um, I had to really kind of write, you know, my old style of writing out of my system until I came to a, a new place with it. So did you self-produce your new record or did you continue working with? I did. Was it Pip? I did. I, I mean, like, I did self-produce, but um, I also worked with Pip Norman and John Castle as well. Oh, great! So, so what I would do is I would get, I would record as much as I could of the songs um, at home, um, because that's the nature of making records these days. You got to, you know, even when you cut your budgets down, they, it's, the records still cost lots of money. Um, uh, and then I would take it into those guys, and then they would kind of become my sounding boards, and and you know you'd kind of get the song to or the production and everything to a certain point and they'd just kind of add that third dimension 
to it and yeah. stuff that, you know, you wouldn't really think about. And that was a really relaxing, cool part of it because I'd, I love collaboration and, and part of the idea of making a solo record was getting a chance to collaborate with some other people outside of my band. Yeah, when I made my first solo record, I ended up finding myself listening to like kick samples for 20 minutes yeah. <laughs> you're just like what the fuck just happened that normally that takes two seconds when someone else does it and you're loving every minute of it you just like you, you <laughs> tell your your partner at the time hold on i've just got some work to do in the studio and you go in and you continue <laughs> listening to kick samples oh yeah oh when one one of the speaking of kick samples one of the big things that i really wanted to capture and that, that this is part of the nature of actually being in a band as well is that you um you know you have uh, a, a person who plays the drums and whenever they sit on the drums, it just sounds like them on the drums and that's cool, but you know, yeah. it is what it is. Um, so I really wanted to capture this sound that, it, that, it, you know, is that again, like, you know, Neil Young Harvest or Beck Sea Change, that, that kind of classic, you know, um, seventies, really close mic drum sound. And we, um, yep. we, me and Pip talked about it for a long time and, and we, we, it was all kind of really serendipitous because this guy who was meant to be like the vintage king dude in Melbourne couldn't make it. So we got this other guy who was this session guy and he was amazing. This guy called Lee Fisher. Um, he came in and, and played drums and, and we got, and we just, we mic'd it up and we nailed it. We got the sound and we were just like, yes. And we were high-fiving and it was because it was the kind of the bed of the whole record. Um, but as we were getting samples, like, so, you know, at the end of your recording, you go through and you get your snare and your tom and your kick samples. Yeah, uh, yeah. We were like the worst audio files of all time. Like every time that the <laughs> kick, you know, would go, it'd be like, boom. And me and, <laughs> me and Pip were sitting at the back of the room. We were just like, oh. <laughs> and, then like, and then the snare would go over like, yeah, <laughs> because oh, it was yeah. so like, it was just <laughs> gross, man. Um, and we were, yeah, we were getting so excited by the, by the sounds of these, these drums. But now I, now I have those <laughs> drum samples, so I'm pretty happy. Maybe you can send me some and I can <laughs> yeah. enjoy the. Yeah, you can, you can just listen to it enjoy and go, 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 ooh. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um. Let's talk about synthesizers for a second. Oh, yes, because please. you have a Jupiter 4, right? I do. And I love that was one of the other things about making uh, a solo record is I wanted it to be like, because I've got this Hofner bass, so I wanted the sound of the Hofner bass, the classic 70s drum sound, just acoustic guitar and synthesizers. So that's pretty much what I wanted the whole. Oh, whole and that that's, sounds beautiful. And that's pretty much what the record is. So I've got, I've got the Jupiter, which is wicked, and it's got a certain kind of palette of sounds. And as you know, as soon as you go from soft synths into real synths, it's just like, you know, even if it's not the sound you're looking for, you're just like, just sounds better. Um, but it does. But Pip, Pip was fantastic with the synth thing. So he's got a bunch of really cool um, synths. And that was that was a big factor in bringing um, the colors and stuff to the record. Um, because really a lot of my, my building up was just acoustic bass and drums. But he had this amazing one um, called the Comet 64. I think, no, Comet something or other. It was like a, it's a Japanese synth and I've never heard anything like it. Oh, it, I don't know it. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Blue Comet, I think it's called. Um, mm. but yeah, it's a, it's a Japanese synth and I think it's very much the sound of, of Pip Norman's records. Every single record you hear the Blue Comet on it. Um, but yeah, that was great. And he also had a, he had a, a like the classic, um, Juno, um, which is the, the really classic one. The 60. I think that, yep. Juno, Juno 60 yep. or Juno 6. No, you had the 60, yep. Um, yeah. so, so that was that was great. So between, and then he had an ARP as well, which was great. 
Um, oh, great. So, like and an Odyssey. Yeah, yep, he had an Odyssey. And yeah. so, um, and then there was some kind of Moog thing we had floating around as well. But, um, but what Pip did a lot of, which I hadn't really um, experienced, but I was super impressed with, is was writing all your MIDI tracks and then sending that MIDI out to all of your, oh, your, yeah. your keys and then playing with it and then recording it real time. So I found I found that super inspiring. It and is cool. really cool. And you, and you sort of have to know how to do it because it's not that I think that's something that not many people who are just starting recording or who have been using soft synth their whole life mm. really know how to do to con- you know convert MIDI to CV or whatever. Yep, yep. And it's pretty it's, cool. But it's amazing cuz then you then you're not sitting there practicing the part and tweaking your knobs at the same time. It's like it's That's sending right. out and you can just do heaps of different passes, you know, like, oh, let's record that again. Yeah. And then you just tweak it again and tweak it again. And yeah, super yeah. cool. It's magic. It's MIDI, man. I know. <laughs> amazing. Do you know what I saw? Sorry not to get too, too nerdy McNerdison, but you know, like we could go, we could go down a deep rabbit hole and just, and it'd be cozy be and, and divine. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, I, I was in a keyboard shop uh, yesterday and Behringer, Bloody Behringer, I do a like a synth module, um, which is basically a copy of a Moog, um, and apparently it's amazing. It only costs four hundred dollars. I think I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. There's so many things these days, and so many like, um, so many things that sound analog, even though they're not, and things that have yeah. analog signal paths but digital interface. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Spru, we're living in the in the golden age of synthesizers, I reckon. I think so. Even though, even though it was really the '80s, but you know, I think we're living in the in the high tech golden age of synthesizer reissues. <laughs> if you, it, yeah, absolutely, where where people kind of get it on in the right way, yeah. which is good. Um, if you ever get a chance to see Pip and have a chat to him, ask him about. Um, so you know, um, at the Melbourne um, Museum, they've got this yeah, the ama- mess thing. Yeah, that humongous um, synth, which is like some you know, mint condition, beautiful yeah. wall of synth. There's this lady who is like, the, you'd probably know better than me, but she's like the professional, you know, she's got like a doctorate in how to use this thing. Um, and uh, he, when he was, do, he was doing Missy Higgins' record and uh, I don't know how it all worked out, but they basically got her involved to just kind of mess around on this thing because she was allowed to. She was basically came over from America just to work on this thing. Yeah, um, right. So they just sat there and she just kind of churned out all this crazy coolness out of this, you know. For Missy's m- record? Yeah, her new record. Wow. Mm. That's cool. So I'm not sure how much of it worked. I, I, I was talking to him at the beginning of the process and he was just like so excited because Pip's a massive synthophile, so yeah. Wow. I reckon that's really, that's really great that that um, mess space exists. We've yeah. talked about a little bit on this podcast. It's so it's cool that, you know, bands can just go and, and hire hire the room and just use whatever's in there and that everything is rare and amazing. It's like a playground of awesomeness. Well, I, I haven't been yet. I need to go visit. Yeah, apparently you need to be a member, or a, but if you're a member, you can bring a friend. Great. Let's. Do you want to become a member and yep. I'll be your friend? Let's do Great. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You afraid you would be so much more appropriate to be the member because you you are like you know the synth queen. Hey, I want to ask you my final question, mm-hmm. which is the question I ask all of my guests. Yeah, what's your strangest or worst show experience, or just the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music? Yeah, it's a real. I thought about it. And it's a tough one because there over like a twenty year career now. There is so yeah. many over twenty years. We're like twenty one years now, but it's 
there's so many weird and strange moments. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that pops to mind straight away around about the era, you might have even been playing this show with us, um, but <laughs> but we played um, in Newtown. They had like the old RSL there. Um, and there's something about these um, theatre stages that are just, they're like, um, they've got like an angle on them because they're, you know, so everyone in the audience, you know, can see everybody. So you kind of have this weird vertigo thing going on anyway. So we were playing the show and I think it was all going pretty well. Um, and then this, <laughs> this, these people at the front row um, came up with a taxidermist cat and we're like, this is our what? cat. And we had it taxidermist, <laughs> a taxidermist, whatever you call it. And, um, but, and we, can we please put him on stage with you? Cause that would just be amazing. You know, cause what? we always used to listen I... to Eskimo <laughs> Joe with our cat and we were like, okay. And so we put it up on Stu's amp and the rest of the gig, we just were like looking nervously over at this weird, like Creepy. taxidermist. Yeah. So that was pretty That's strange. I remember at one time in yeah, another, another moment, cause I'm, I really, uh, don't condone violence in any shape or form, um, and we were in Coffs Harbour, of all places, and I feel like we're going full circle now with this. Um, and yeah. we're, we're playing with a band called Lash. Do you remember Lash? Yeah. I do remember Lash. That's the only bit of their song I remember. Didn't yeah. Joel go out with one of them? Yeah, that happened at the yeah. end of that tour. You know, you put a bunch <laughs> of kids together, you never know. You, that's always going to happen, really. But yeah, Joel did go sure. out with one of them. Um, he, yeah. But yeah, they had a song that went... That's all I remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were we were playing with them one time and basically these two footy teams, or pro- possibly rugby at that part of the country, um, rocked up to the show and they'd all just been, you know, there'd been like a rivalry on the, on the field. And they just oh, went into this yeah. like full on fist fight and cleared the whole entire dance floor. And like someone got their oh, head no. like smashed, like uh, got their head smashed into a pot plant. And the whole pot plant broke. Shit. And it was just one of those moments where you just sit there going, you know, mouth agape going, I can't believe humans actually want to do this to each other. Yeah. You know? And also you're just trying to have a nice time and entertain people. Well, how do you come back from that as well? You know, like yeah. everyone just smashed each other on the dance floor. That's that's a nice <laughs> safe environment. So yeah, I had to do the whole kind of get up on there and going, hey, you know, we don't condone violence in any shape or form, um, mm. but we're going to finish this show. And you do it and you find yourself just like really kind of on edge and, and quite angry at them, just going, you yeah. fucking idiots. You've ruined everything. Yes, you've ruined everything. <laughs> Well, those are two pretty unreal stories. I, I love the taxidermy cat. <laughs> the taxidermy cat. I don't think I was there. I, d- I would remember that. Newtown RSL. <laughs> where, did, where did we play for the gig that we played with you guys in, in Sydney? In Sydney. Can't remember. Yeah, there you go. It was around about that era. I can only era. remember Coffs Harbour and don't know how the lights in your house work. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. Uh, <laughs> and you made them drums piss. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're all the you've just all the important bits, which is good. The highlights. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for talking to me, Cav. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing the solo record. Yeah. Especially if you've got synthesizers on it. I listened to your um your Hope Street EP and and that was really cool too because you've got like some CR78 type sounding yep, drum yep. machine stuff happening. Yep, there's all of that going on. That was the EP that I did with Pip and and the song Hope Street and another song Dancing were the two kind of songs that that led the way into what the record became basically. Oh, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. And I'll see you in Brisbane. Yeah, see you in Brisbane.